Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 368th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHEMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about computer-assisted coding and artificial intelligence. And, of course, the question we're asking this morning, are they the same or are they different when it comes to coding? And to explore that subject, is going to be Layman Willis. He's going to join us later in the broadcast. Well, if there's an industry buzzword that is heard most often in today's healthcare, it's probably artificial intelligence or AI. You are absolutely right. And we want to know if AI could be a potential job killer for coders. Yes, we are wondering... And uh, we worried that computer-assisted coding would be a job killer for coders, and look how that turned out. Yeah, indeed. You know, the month of May is National Mental Health Month, as you probably know, because you know so much. And uh, we asked nationally renowned author and psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffick to join us this morning to explore the subject of grief. Grief is a kind of confusing subject in the world of coding, both ICD-10 and DSM-5. Mm-hmm. And you have a talkback segment this morning, too. What are you going to be discussing? Um, the proposed rule that uh, took my attention last week uh, bumped back my coding clinic observations, and I'm going to share those with you today. Very good. Looking forward to your observations on the coding clinic for the American Hospital Association. We continue our coverage of the proposed IPPS rule. Lori Johnson is going to be reporting on some of the procedure codes that are found in the new proposal. We have much to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by ICD University, inviting you to attend an important webcast this Thursday on how to identify encephalopathy in the medical record. It features Dr. Erica Reamer. To register, use the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Here now is Tim Powell. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you. UPMC versus Highmark. Can UPMC pop champagne corks yet? UPMC reported revenue of $5.1 billion for the quarter ended March 31st of 2019, up 10% from the $4.6 billion for the first quarter of 2018. At the same time, expenses went up over 11%. Since revenues are still larger than expenses for UPMC, this resulted in net income of $289 million, an increase over the $97 million reported in the first quarter of 2018. Enrollment in UPMC health plans is up to 3.5 million members as of March 31st, up 3% compared to the first quarter of 2018. So what does all this mean? Does the 3% increase in UPMC health plans enrollment drive a 10% increase in revenue? And does this mean they're winning the battle with Highmark? It's much more complicated than that. We should also consider that new accounting rules impact the reporting of revenue between the two periods. In fact, I think that UPMC Medicare Advantage enrollment being up almost 8% for the month of April 2019 over the month ended April 2018 based on CMS data is a more solid sign that UPMC is winning the enrollment battle versus Highmark. And here are some Medicare Advantage enrollment totals for UPMC's Medicare Advantage products in between 2018 and 2019. 
In all UPMC plans in, as of 2018, UPMC plans had 177,000 members. And at the end of 2019, April 2019, they had 191,033 members. Uh, overall, this led to an increase of 8%. Medicare Advantage members generate much larger premiums in terms of per member per month revenue than other insurance products. They are also much more costly than the average plan in which members may or may not use services in a given period. Having worked with MA plans, there's a general rule of thumb. The first three months as premiums come in, you have parties and celebrate. The second three months as claims start to hit, you start doing projections. The third quarter, as you see claims start to meet premiums, you sober up. And the last quarter, if claim payments overwhelm the premiums, you start reaching out on LinkedIn to your old friends. In addition to claim payments, MA plans must work through risk adjustment both quarterly and annually. Medicare pays MA plans based on a base amount per member per month that is adjusted based on their hierarchical condition code or HCC scoring. That means they start out with a per member per month that shifts as claim data is filed and as adjustments hit for each member's risk score. UPMC, along with other MA plans, must make sure that they have systems to monitor risk scores and control costs as it grows. With health systems becoming insurance plans and plans buying providers, one thing is for sure. Data infrastructure and the will to manage based on that data will determine winners and losers as we move forward. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, it's May 7th, 2019, and on this date in 1874, the American Medical Association is founded. But this morning, you're listening to the 368th edition of Talk Ten Tuesday. Stand by. Plan to join 600 of your peers in health information management at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting in September. Hear presentations from industry expert speakers on CDI, revenue cycle, professional services, facility services, 2020 coding updates, compliance, auditing, and innovation. Collaborate during networking lunches and come away with new knowledge and solutions. All advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 codebook of their choosing. Save up to $100 by registering before July 15th. Don't wait. Register now. Visit ahima.org slash clinical coding for more information. Now is the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Today I want to talk about two topics. One is the new procedures codes that are proposed in the inpatient prospective payment fiscal year 20 um, proposed rule. And um, let's start with the procedures. So in the med surgical section, there were 245 new procedure codes that are added. And those codes cover bypass of the cerebral ventricle, um, bypass of the innominate artery, the subclavian arteries, the axillary arteries, and the brachial artery, occlusion of the gastric vein, bypass of the small and large intestines, extraction of the breast, replacement of skin with autologous tissue substitute, which is a cell suspension, insertion, removal, revision of the subcutaneous defibrillator, insertion of an intramedullary limb lengthening internal fixation device. 
In the administrative section, there were 14 new codes added. Um, they include transfusion of the allogeneic and non-allogeneic stem cells and irrigation of the joints that's performed percutaneous endoscopic. In the monitoring section, there were four codes added that focused on monitor, monitoring of the lymphatic flow. And in new technology, there were four codes added that deal with the administration of various specific substances. So sort of a, a, a real focused um, addition to the procedure codes. The next topic I want to cover is actually the measles outbreak, and which is a totally different topic. Measles, which is found in category B as in boy, 05, is making news, as we've seen, either on the TV or in print. On May 3rd, the Center for Disease Control posted that from January 1st through April 26, 2019, 704 cases were reported, which is the highest number of reported cases since 1994. Earlier this week, my hometown of Pittsburgh announced that there is now an outbreak of measles as five cases have been reported in the area. Our local health department is asking residents to call the health department if they suspect that they have measles and they can come in for testing to the health department. They do not want these patients in public areas for fear of spreading the disease. The vulnerable people the vulnerable people include infants less than one year, unvaccinated people, people from other parts of the world which have a low vaccination coverage. If you're not sure if you're immune to the measles, your doctor can order a titer test. This blood test checks for the presence of certain antibodies to determine your immunity status. I am planning a trip in July and was recommended to be screened for measles. I believe that I had the measles when I was a child and also had received the vaccine, but I'm not sure what my level um, of immunity is. And remember that there may be a cost associated with this test if there's no medical necessity. If your immunity is not adequate, you will need to be vaccinated, which is Z23 and ICD-10. Vaccination is 93% effective if you have the one-dose variety. It's 97% effective if you have two doses. So hoping everybody knows what their immunity status is. Back to you, Erica. Well, Lori, let's hope that Z28.82, immunization not carried out because of caregiver refusal, goes down. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori, thank you very much. And you can read Lori Johnson's reporting on this very timely topic in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Thanks again, Lori Johnson, very much for that excellent report. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the month of May is National Mental Health Month, and naturally we ask renowned author and psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffat to join us this morning to explore the subject of grief. It's a personal one for me and no doubt for many others. So good morning, Dr. Moffat. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for your personal help. Let's talk about grief, let's talk about its dimensions, and let's talk about why it seems to be confusing in ICD-10 as well as DSM-5. 
Will do, Chuck. And, you know, for better and or worse, grief can be considered to be the cost of love. But how much it will cost depends on the intensity and complexity of that love, as well as the uniqueness of the mourner. That is why, despite whatever guidelines and timelines we hear about grieving, it is always individualized. That love which is lost is often a person, but it can be work, hobbies, or one's own health, among other things. One of the attempts to comfort us has come from the development of stages of grieving. The most popular theoretical one was developed by the psychiatrist Kubler-Ross. It gives these classical psychological stages to go through in order. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. The problem that later the research discovered is that not all people experience all the stages. Some go to and fro between different stages, and some get stuck for a long time in a stage. Moreover, including the stage called depression invites confusion with clinical depression, which can indeed emerge during or after the grieving process. Clinical depression does call for professional treatment with psychotherapy and or medication. The tip-off for clinical depression is a long, sustained, depressed mood and an inability to experience pleasure and happiness. Grieving usually varies in intensity, and some things can be enjoyable during the process. Even so, grief can become complicated, which is perhaps why it is defined differently in ICD-10 and DSM-5, a rarity of difference nowadays. Actually, there is nothing in DSM-5, whereas normal grief has a Z code and can also be a symptom of adjustment disorder in ICD-10. ICD-11 is supposed to include the category of, quotes prolonged grief disorder, end of quotes. An atypical grief can more likely emerge after the death of a loved one when the prior relationship was fraught with ambivalence, anger, or guilt, or being someone who had a lot of unresolved losses in the past. All of this is to say in this month of mental health awareness is that it is best to understand the tasks that need to be worked through during the grieving process. There are four main ones. First, accept the reality of the loss. Second, work through the pain of grief. Third, adjust to an environment in which the loss is missing. And fourth, find an enduring connection with whatever was lost while embarking on a new life. Helping one to get through these tasks could be friends and other loved ones, as well as rituals from one's cultural and religious group. Comfort can also come just by being there with a mourner, even without any advice. What should be avoided is to initially take medication, like sleeping pills, to try to blunt the pain of the upheaval. Interestingly enough, our closest mammalian relatives, the apes, dogs, and the elephants among them, show clear signs of mourning, too. There is good evolutionary survival reasons that we have to grieve the loss of loved ones. That is, because it is our social and spiritual relationships that have enabled us to thrive as a species. This is, always, this is also why we have public mourning, often with comments from our president, when there has been a major societal tragedy, such as in the synagogue murder in the San Diego area a week or so ago. May we all be comforted in our mornings. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Dr. Moffick. That was Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick is a nationally renowned psychiatrist and is the Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist as well. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Dr. Moffick. And as Dr. Moffick mentioned, last week here in San Diego, a gunman opened fire on congregants who are celebrating the last day of Passover, killing one and wounding an eight-year-old girl and her uncle and the rabbi. We send our condolences to family and friends who are mourning the death of 60-year-old Lori Gilbert Kay, who was shot and killed by the gunman.
The Talk to you Tuesday CDI report is also our lead story this morning. It's about computer-assisted coding and artificial intelligence. The Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report is brought to you by Capios Health's two-click software solution, IOSurge. IOSurge quickly and accurately identifies the correct billing code and patient status for Medicare procedures. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report is Layman Willis. Thank you, Chuck. My article that I wrote on uh, artificial intelligence, computer-assisted coding, really covers some ideas around um, what we think of when we look at what is being proposed as AI, as it's commonly referred to, uh, the theory or development of computer systems that are able to perform tasks, and they normally require human intelligence, such as visual perception or speech recognition, decision-making, and translation between languages. And while software does have capabilities to be able to uh, help with those endeavors, there are still um, uh, processes that humans must be involved in when we come to decision making and uh, you know recognition of contextual concepts uh, which are really missing uh, from what our the technology is currently capable of coming up with when they program uh, these type of algorithms to be able to uh, cover what we call computer assisted coding. Um, you know, much of the involvement of vendor software around computer-assisted coding all has to do with setup. It has to do with the capabilities and adapt- adaptabilities of the different systems that are organizations that we also have to interact with. And those software platforms and how they uh, connect with each other, how they communicate with one another, and also how they update. Uh, as everyone probably is aware of, you know, their own systems that they utilize in doing their work or just with platforms, whether it's a Mac or it's a Microsoft Office platform, you, you're aware of updates and how those updates will currently uh, possibly frustrate you sometimes when things change. And so these are some of the things that coders often experience and, and also revenue management personnel within the organization, uh, whether it's in HIM or other areas. And so these areas can be, uh, you know, frustrated because of uh, the connectivity issues, uh, the lack of confidence in the products and technology, um, information that we uh, thought would be prevalent to us and, and available to us is decreased. Um, it, you know, it has promises of helping us with uh, possibly uh, productivity, uh, but those don't really play out in the long run many times. Um, as well, we often have uh, other software considerations in coding guidance that might be aberrant or, or just missing sometimes in the uh, the vendor platform. Um, and so, again, you know, there's a, a missing component on some of these things. The accuracy uh, actually sometimes might decrease over over time, and it, and it needs to come up. And so, again, uh, some of the areas in which it may benefit more uh, could be uh, areas such as uh, same-day surgeries, uh, you know, freestanding ambulatory surgery centers, um, the the physician area or the ED area. Those are those are located 
locations where uh, CAC can capitalize upon uh, you know what's going on in the coding world to really bring uh, a value of scale. But when we talk about long-term inpatient coding, um, it really hasn't turned the corner yet to make the difference. And because of that, I'd say that the jury is still out on trying to call this anything other than computer-assisted coding. It's not artificial intelligence yet, but uh, hopefully we'll get there one day. That's all I have, and thank you very much. Uh, Eric, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Lehman. That was Lehman Willis. Lehman is Director of Coding for Velocity Healthcare Collaborative in Central Georgia. Chuck. Thank you, Erica, and uh, thank you very much, Lehman, and uh, you can read his uh, reporting on ICD-10 Monitor. Great story, too. Uh, Lehman, thanks very much. Now it's time for a very popular segment here on Talk 10 Tuesday, and that's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's your turn. Thanks, Chuck. I wanted to share a few thoughts on the 2019 first quarter AHA coding clinic with our listeners. I strongly recommend that your facility purchase a license for you to read the entire thing, because these are really considered official guidance, and what I'm giving you here is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. One of the questions regarded Zoster meningitis B02.1. I wanted to plug getting your name on a wait list for the Shingrix shot at a pharmacy near you. Um, they're just becoming available again. It's a two-dose series, and it is much more effective than the previous shingles shot, the Zostavax. Just so you all know, it causes side effects more than other vaccines. My arm hurt for days, and for a couple of days, it made me feel like I had the flu, and I actually went to bed early. In fact, the informational materials say that one in six patients have to curb their regular activities from it. But shingles really stinks, so I guess it's worth it. On to the coding clinic. There were lots of procedures, questions, and answers. I'm focusing on CM because you know it's my favorite. Although you may not be permitted to make the assumptive coding that an AIDS-defining infection is linked to the HIV, you should query every time. The reality is your provider is assuming a linkage, and you should be getting the correct codes, which will include B20. But not all pneumonias are HIV-related. Streptococcal pneumonia is pedestrian and not an AIDS-defining illness. There were two questions regarding the sequencing of acute kidney injury, and I was glad to see the response is that there is no rule mandating AKI be sequenced first. The question to ask yourself and often the clinical provider is, what bought the bed? If the AKI was a secondary condition treated concomitantly, then it probably shouldn't be the principal diagnosis. Midline catheters didn't exist when I practiced medicine. We had pick lines, which are peripherally inserted central catheters. Midline catheters are inserted into large peripheral veins like the cephalic, basilic, or brachial upper arm veins, but they are not central lines. Any complication due to a midline catheter should get a T82 code, and that will define the DRG. A complication from a central venous catheter will get a principal diagnosis of T80.211A, presuming it's POAY. These codes supersede sepsis, which would be a secondary diagnosis. Then a question was asked regarding an abscess, which was documented as pelvic, intraabdominal, and presacral. The guidance distinguishes between the intraabdominal and retroperitoneal components and notes two codes would be necessary to record both elements, Q1 
K68.19, other retroperitoneal abscess, and K65.1, peritoneal abscess. The next question regards sequencing of metastatic lung cancer and a malignant pericardial effusion, which needed to be drained. If the cancer is not being treated during the encounter, the complication is the principal. In this case, I31.3 pericardial effusion is principal, and the C34 code for the lung cancer and the C79.31 for the brain mets would be secondary diagnoses. I was happy to see that pancytopenia from acute myelogenous leukemia is not considered inherent, so you would use a secondary code. You all know I believe you need as many ICD-10-CM codes as you need to tell the story. We are instructed to code drug-induced diarrhea with K52.1, toxic gastroenteritis, and colitis. Remember that the adverse effect of a drug correctly prescribed and properly administered is a secondary diagnosis. It gives the detail of what type of drug caused the untoward effect. I think they gave contradictory advice a few questions later when asked about a patient with AML and tifilitis involving the colon documented as neutropenic colitis, likely chemotherapy-induced acute colitis. There, they recommended K52.89, other specified non-infectious gastroenteritis and colitis, with the additional code of T45.1. 1X5A, adverse effects of chemo. I don't know about you, but I hate when it looks like they're contradicting themselves. It makes me confused. For psychogenic seizures, you don't use an epilepsy code. You use F44.5, conversion disorder with seizures or convulsions. I wish they had used the actual, um, inclu- I, I wish they actually used the inclusion term pseudo-seizures, which is how we clinically refer to them. And it makes it clearer that they are psychiatric as opposed to true seizure activity. Finally, I can't explain emphysema and acute exacerbation of COPD exclusionary instructions. Emphysema and chronic bronchitis may be the main forms of COPD, but neither has an acute on chronic code, which is essential to telling the story. If I were queen of coding, and let me remind you all, I am not, I would make it an excludes two, and you would specify the type of COPD if possible and add the detail of acute exacerbation or lower respiratory tract infection. That's my take on the Q1 coding clinics. Please read them over for yourselves. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Eric, very much. And I like what you said, that you're not the coding queen. Thank you very much. We've asked our panel to stick around for a roundtable discussion on today's Talk to End Tuesday. And, Eric, I know you had a question you wanted to ask Dr. Stephen Moffat. I do, actually. Um, Stephen, so I had been reading on, uh, I think it was Facebook or LinkedIn or something, I don't know, um, about anticipatory grief. And I was wondering if you could just sort of explain what that is and touch on that for a minute. Uh, that's a really good uh, focus for us because I didn't say anything about it in my talk. And anticipatory grief really has to do with anticipating that someone or yourself is going to die soon. And can you and should you talk about that loss beforehand? So a loved one may have a terminal illness, or you may know you'll be dying from a terminal illness. And 
one of the things I mentioned that makes grief complicated is that there's some unresolved issues in your life. And so knowing someone's going to die, including yourself, you have a chance to process some of those issues as well as expressing love. It's sort of a paradox. And what makes it even more of a paradox is that none of us know really exactly when we're going to die, although if you're told you have a terminal illness, you have a better idea. So in a way, we always have to, on and off, do some anticipatory grieving, um, because if somebody dies suddenly that we love, then we never have a chance to sort of say goodbye and resolve any difficult issues. So it's a really important concept and something for us to try actually to keep on our minds on and off um, all the time, not to be weighted down by that, but um, it is a process that can actually help um, normal grieving. Can you experience anticipatory grief, like, for instance, in a patient who has Alzheimer's dementia and the essence of who they were sort of is no longer there anymore? Yes. I mean, that's so common nowadays to have someone in the family who might develop that. And as you're implying, they're becoming a different person. In a way, they're becoming a loss for you. Um, And so at the beginning stages of that, it is helpful to try to think about what's being lost and what will be lost and talk it over with family and or a physician um, because it's not the same person you lived with or loved. And that in some ways is even a harder loss than somebody who actually dies because the person is sort of still there, but they're not the same person. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something for all of us to keep in mind nowadays. Thank you so much for your insight, Stephen. Chuck? It's going to be a wrap for our 368th edition of Tucked In Tuesday. And Eric, I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Timothy Powell, of course, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat, whom you just heard, Layman Willis, and of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. And I hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another live edition of Tucked In Tuesday. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Tucked In Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And I want to thank you again for being with us. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Have a good week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.